This episode discusses child abuse, human trafficking, and prostitution. I did not know who the man was. They said I was going to California. We went on board the steamship Belgique. When we got to Japan, I found out we did not get off the steamer, but went on. Then I cried to go back to my mother. I cried all the way over. Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Ochere. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. It's been a very long time, but it's good to be back. This is my second episode that focuses on the experience of Chinese immigrants in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Today, I'm talking about the ladies. As with every other group that has immigrated to the United States, Chinese women are not and were not a monolith. They had varied experiences, and we'll learn about some of them today. But they definitely endured cultural, social, and legal challenges not faced by Chinese men or by women of other nationalities. The first Chinese woman in the United States was A. Fang Moi. In 1834, American businessmen and cousins, Nathaniel and Francis Karn, brought A. Fang Moi to New York from Guangzhou. The Karns had been importing and selling Chinese goods in the United States, and this was part of a campaign to promote their wares. The Chinese lady, as she was known, was first displayed at the Park Place home of Captain Benjamin Aubert. Vice President Martin Van Buren was among the first visitors. After a few months in the Aubert home, A. Fang Moi was taken on a three-year tour that included the Mid-Atlantic, New England, the South, and Cuba. Eventually, P.T. Barnum became her manager. For one week only, in the large hall of New Orleans' North American Hotel, at the corner of Bienville and Levy Streets, tickets to the Chinese Lady Exhibition were $1. Children got in for half price. The advertisement reads, A. Fang Moi is a native of Canton City, about 16 years of age, mild and engaging in her manners, addresses the visitors in English and Chinese, and occasionally walks before the company, so as to afford an opportunity of observing her astonishing little feet, for which the Chinese ladies are so remarkable. Afong's feet is four inches and an eighth in length, being about the size of infants of one year old. The treatment of Afong Moi as a spectacle gives us an idea of some of the earliest American attitudes towards Chinese women, and the Far East in general. The Orient was exotic and mysterious. But the vast majority of Chinese women immigrating to the United States in the late 19th century arrived at the West Coast. And that's where we'll focus today. As I discussed last time, news of California gold traveled all the way to China, and whole villages pooled their resources to send one of their own to Gamsan, or Gold Mountain. One of their own men, that is. The journey was long, dangerous, and expensive. Chinese cultural mores also prevented women, 
respectable women, from traveling abroad. Eventually, American laws also restricted immigration of Chinese women. We'll get to that a little bit later. So if there was a woman in the gold seeker's life, she often stayed behind with her husband's family. So-called grass widows or living widows didn't see their husbands for decades at a time. These factors contributed to a dramatic and enduring gender imbalance for Chinese immigrants. Between 1860 and 1910, the Chinese population in the United States was more than 90% male. But there were women in Gold Rush, California. Just like the men, women came from all over the world to profit from the mines. A very tiny fraction of them panned gold themselves. But they were more likely to run boarding houses, clean, and cook for the miners. And because women of any ethnicity were such a rarity at first, all of their work was highly prized. When Mary Ellen Pleasant arrived in San Francisco in 1852, two wealthy merchants engaged in a bidding war for her cooking services until the price reached $500 per month. Pleasant invested her earnings in mining and real estate, and according to history professor Lynn Hudson, she was the first self-made African-American millionaire. Women also entertained the men in dance halls as singers and dancers and they engaged in sex work. Prostitution was a legal and lucrative trade. Initially, most prostitutes came from Brazil, Mexico, or Peru. They were followed by white women from the East Coast. For decades after the gold rush, prostitutes in San Francisco came from all over the world, including China. The first from China was a woman named Ah Toy, who arrived in San Francisco at the age of 20. According to one story, she had been traveling with a man who had purchased her from her father. The trafficker died en route, and Ah Toy became the mistress of the ship's captain, who gifted her with beautiful silk garments. Ah Toy was a very unique woman, different from her countryfolk in multiple ways. For one thing, the fact that so many people knew her by name was unique. In his memoirs, diplomat Elisha Crosby wrote, quote, she arrived, I think, in 1850 and was a very handsome Chinese girl. She was quite select in her associates, was liberally patronized by the white men, and made a great amount of money, end quote. Atoy capitalized on myths and fantasies about Asian women. White miners lined up around the block and paid an ounce of gold to, as one newspaper put it euphemistically, gaze upon her countenance. Another newspaper reported, quote, Everybody has seen the charming Miss Autoy, who each day parades our streets dressed in the most flashing European and American style, end quote. Another wrote less fondly, quote, Everybody knew that famous or infamous character who was alternately the laughingstock and the plague of the place, end quote. And visiting Frenchman Albert Bernard de Rosset described her in his journal as a tall, well-built woman. In fact, she was the finest-looking woman I have ever seen. He also wrote, The Chinese are usually ugly, the women as well as the men. But there are few girls who are attractive, if not actually pretty. For example, the strangely alluring Ah Choi, with her slender body and laughing eyes. 
Atoy had many interactions with the American judicial system, something else that set her apart. Sometimes she was the plaintiff and sometimes the defendant. Shortly after her arrival in the country, leaders of San Francisco's Chinese community received a letter from a man in Hong Kong who claimed to be Atoy's husband, and he wanted his wife returned. In court, Atoy denied being married, saying she'd come alone to better her condition. The judge granted her wish to stay in the United States. During another court appearance, she she complained to Judge George Baker that her customers were paying their one-ounce gold fee with brass filings instead. She named names and pointed out her customers in the courtroom. Though she presented the counterfeit money to the judge as evidence, she couldn't prove who had defrauded her, and that case was dismissed. In 1850, five more Chinese women arrived in the city. Two went to work for Ah Toy. Now a madam, she moved to Pike Street and set up her brothel there. Ah Toy's power and independence were a threat to the local Chinese male power structure, a structure that I'll talk more about shortly. One leader in particular, Young Shen, also known as Norman Ah Sing, tried to control Ah Toy and other Chinese prostitutes through taxation. In 1851, Atoy took Yongsheng to court, and she prevailed. Ironically, though she was in court many times herself, she taught the girls that she would enslave in her brothels to avoid courts at all costs. Atoy's independence was another characteristic that made her very unique. Most Chinese prostitutes in Gold Rush, California, were in fact slaves. As I mentioned in the last episode on Chinese immigration, this was a time of economic deprivation in many parts of the Celestial Empire. Families struggled for survival, and girls were the least valuable members. Daughters were often sold into domestic service in a practice of muitsai, which literally means little sister. On top of the initial payment that the family received, selling the daughter away meant one less mouth to feed. It was not only legal, but part of a girl's filial duty. And taking in a girl servant was considered a benevolent act toward the poor family. Some Wheatsai were treated well. Best case, a marriage was arranged when the girl turned 18. At the age of seven, her parents in debt, Quan Lan Fan, went to be a servant for a shopkeeper's family. Sometimes they would lend her out to yet another family to roll cigarettes. After leaving their service, she married a much older man and eventually had eight children with him. But Muizai often endured heavy labor and beatings. Tianfo Wu was from an upper-class family, but that did not protect her from her father's gambling debts. She recalls, I was six when I came to this country in 1893. My worthless father gambled every cent away and so left us poor. I think my mother's family was well-to-do, because our grandmother used to dress in silk and satin and always brought us lots of things. And the day my father took me, he fibbed and said he was taking me to see my grandmother, that I was very fond of, you know, and I got on the ferry boat with him, and mother was crying. And I couldn't understand why she would cry if I go to see grandma. She gave me a new toothbrush and a new washing in a, in a blue bag when I left her. When I saw her cry, I said, Don't cry, Mother. I'm just going to see Grandma and be right back. 
in that worthless father. My own father, imagine, had every inclination to sell me, and he sold me on the ferry boat, locked me in the cabin while he was negotiating my sale. And I kicked and screamed and screamed, and they wouldn't open the door till after some time, you see. I suppose he had made his bargain and left the steamer. Then they opened the door and let me out, and I went up and down, up and down, here and there, couldn't find him. And he had left me, you see, with a strange woman. That woman, it was supper time, took me to Ningpo, China, to eat, and I refused to eat. I wanted to go home. And then she took me to Shanghai and left me with another woman. That woman never asked me to work and was very kind to me. And I was there, I don't know for how long. Then a woman from San Francisco came and picked me up and brought me over. Once in San Francisco, Tian Fo Wu was resold to a brothel. She describes her experience as a muisai. My owner used to make me carry a big fat baby on my back and make me to wash his diapers. And you know, to wash you have to stoop over and then he pulls you back and cry and cry. Oh, I got desperate. I didn't care what happened to me. I just pinched his cheek, his seat, you know, just gave it to him. Then of course I got it back. She, his mother, went and burned a red hot iron tong and burnt me on the arm. A neighbor in Chinatown saw the abuse and reported it to the San Francisco home of the Women's Occidental Board of Missions. Mission workers staged a rescue, which is described in the home's records. Tai Choi, alias Teen Fook, was rescued by Ms. Houseworth, Ms. Florence Worley, and some police officers from her inhuman mistress who lived on Jackson Street near Stockton Street. The child had been very cruelly treated, her flesh pinched and twisted till her face was scarred. Another method of torture was to dip lighted candle wicking in oil and burn her arms with it. Teen Fook is a pretty child of about 10 years old, rosy-cheeked and fair complexion. But not all daughters who were sold away went into domestic service. Many ended up as prostitutes in China or in the United States. If they made it to the U.S., the girls might be able to send home $200 to $300 within a year. Sometimes a family knew their daughter's true fate. Other times they were told the girls would be married to wealthy husbands. Huey Yao gave Wong Ah So's family 450 Mexican dollars for her hand in marriage. She recalls, I was 19 when this man came to my mother and said that in America there was a great deal of gold. She continues, He was a laundryman, but said he earned plenty of money. He was very nice to me, and my mother liked him, so my mother was glad to have me go with him as his wife. I thought I was his wife, and was very grateful that he was taking me to such a grand country where everyone was rich and happy. Two weeks after arriving in San Francisco, Wong Ah So learned that she was not a wife, but a slave, and would be forced to work as a prostitute. Like hundreds of others, Wong Ah So had come from Guangdong province, also called Canton. 
As an incident from 1869 demonstrates, the appetite for these trafficked girls was insatiable. A ship called the China pulled in to San Francisco's port. Custom House officials, uniformed police, and Chinese merchants crowded the wharf as the craft carried in 30 boxes of opium, 350 pounds of tobacco, and 400 Chinese women. One reporter wrote that it took, quote, the united strength of the whole police force to prevent them from getting hold of the women, end quote. Slavery had been abolished in the United States four years prior, but the officials present were likely aware that the women, correction, girls, teens and younger, would be sold at auction in alleys for as much as $2,500. A few were sold to higher-class brothels, where they served exclusively Chinese clientele. But most ended up in so-called cribs, dark, dirty, and cheap dens with only enough room to perform the act. They had both white and Chinese customers. A woman named Agam testified that she'd been sold for $2,000 at the age of 17. She recalls, quote, I found many little rooms and many men in them. I was taken around and shown to them. They said, oh, yes, this is the new addition to the house, uh, and things like that. This woman said, you can do business here, end quote. Though illiterate, the captives would have been forced to sign a contract like this one. An agreement to assist a young girl named Lei Yao. Because she became indebted to her mistress for passage, food, etc., and has nothing to pay, she makes her body over to the woman, Sep Sam, to serve as a prostitute to make out the sum of $503. The money shall draw no interest, and Lei Yao shall receive no wages. Lei Yao shall serve four and a half years. On this day of agreement, Lei Yao receives the sum of $503 in her own hands. When the time is out, Lei Yao may be her own master, and no man shall trouble her. If she runs away before the time is out, and any expense is incurred in catching, then Lei Yao must pay that expense. If she is sick 15 days or more, she shall make up one month for every 15 days. If Sep Sam goes, should go back to China, then Lei Yao shall serve another party till her time is out. If in such service she should be sick 100 days or more and cannot be cured, she may return to Sep Sam's place. But many women died before these contracts ran out. Disease, violence, and poverty cut their lives short. Some women hastened their own deaths via opium. Reverend Otis Gibson testified before the California Senate, quote, They have come to the asylum all bruises. They are beaten and punished cruelly if they fail to make money. When they become worn out and unable to make any more money, they are turned out to die. End quote. Most in the buying and selling of women and girls was done by secret societies called Tongs, kind of the Chinese equivalent of the mafia. Tongs were organizations of former rebels who had been part of uprisings and regional conflicts in China. When they got here, they changed their focus to making money from facilitating gambling, opium, and prostitution. They smuggled women and girls into the country, coached them into lying to the authorities, forged immigration documents, and bribed customs officials. 
the Hip Yi Chong was responsible for almost 90% of the trafficking, importing 6,000 women for prostitution between 1852 and 1873, making a profit of $200,000. For each woman, they charged a fee of $40, 10 of which was said to have gone to the white police officers, who looked the other way or otherwise protected the activity. Tong leader Fung Jing Toi, a.k.a. Little Pete, was an especially effective trafficker. He was known to cut off kidnapped girls' hair to make them look like boys, conceal them in buckets of coal, and hide them in padded crates billed as dishware. He spoke English well, having learned it at the Methodist Chinese Mission in San Francisco's Chinatown. Pete owned the F.C. Peters & Company shoe factory with his uncle and brother. He also oversaw murder for hire. Last time, I mentioned that Huiguan, or mutual aid societies, were accused of facilitating prostitution. There was some overlap of membership between Tongs and Huiguan, and I won't try to claim where one started and the other ended. Yung Cheng, about whom we heard earlier, was the leader of a benevolent association. He owned a mercantile store and a restaurant. He also ran a brothel, which was likely the source of conflict with Atoy. Publicly, the six companies, as the Confederation of Weiguan was known, condemned the trafficking of women. They tried to have known prostitutes and traffickers deported and cooperated with police in investigations and raids, infrequent though they were. An alliance of the six companies and other Chinese-American associations hired a lawyer and succeeded in having a few women deported. The traffickers were so outraged by the interference that they wrote threatening letters, like the following one dated July 28, 1897. To the Chinese Society of English Education Lately, having learned that the Chinese Society of English Education has retained an attorney to prevent girls imported for immoral purposes from landing and made efforts to deport them to China, in consequence of which there is a great loss of our blood money. As you are all Christianized people, you should do good deeds. But if you keep on going to the Custom House, trying to deport girls brought here for immoral purposes from China, and trying to prevent them from landing, your lives of your several people are not able to live longer than this month. Your dying day is surely on hand. Your dying day is surely on hand. The dying man's names are as follows. Dear Wo, Li Hem, Ong Lin Fun, Chin Fong, Chin Ming Sek, Hu Yi Him. Whatever the true nature and intent of these societies, life for the women they controlled was often brutal and brief. But organizations like the Women's Occidental Board of Missions offered refuge. As I mentioned earlier, Tianfu Wu was taken to the home after being rescued from a brothel. Fifteen months after Tian went to the home, Donaldina Cameron joined the staff. She zealously fought against the enslavement of Chinese girls and women. Cameron accompanied axe and sledgehammer-wielding policemen on secret nighttime raids of the brothel of the brothels. She became an expert at finding girls who had been hidden under trapdoors and behind false walls. 
After learning that the police sometimes passed on rescue plans to the traffickers, the mission stopped asking them for help. For her efforts, Cameron earned the nickname Fawn Kwai, or White Devil. Brothel operators would say to their captives, don't go to the White Devil's house at 920 Sacramento Street because the food is poisoned. Or they claimed, she eats babies. Agum recalled being told that the house was, quote, like a prison, and the doors are always kept locked. They will starve you there, and you will soon die. If you go there and try to get out, they will put you in jail. End quote. Nevertheless, girls like Jun Guai Ying found their way to Cameron House, as it became known. I told one of my customers that I couldn't stand that kind of life, and he told me there was a home I could go to where they could not reach me. I waited my chance, and when I was sent out to have my hair done at 4.30 at a place about two houses from my apartment, I had been told I was to be sent to the country at 5 o'clock. I went to the beauty parlor and told the girl to curl the ends of my hair only. Then I left the beauty parlor and asked a child on the street where the mission was. I was taken to a mission on Washington Street, and from there I was brought to Miss Cameron's home. After girls escaped to Cameron House, the Tongs did not let them go without a fight. Enslavers would accuse the rescued girls of crimes, leading to writs of habeas corpus by which a girl could be removed from the home. When this happened, the girl was rarely heard from again. Margaret Culbertson, Cameron's predecessor at the mission home, sometimes made five or more court appearances to rescue a girl. Over the years, hundreds of women passed through the home, some staying for a day or two or months or even years. They called Cameron Lomo or Beloved Mother. She developed educational programs and also helped the women find jobs, homes, or schools. Daily life included prayer time, chores, and classes in English and in Chinese. The women attended church services regularly and went on excursions to pick fruit in the country. Cameron House also turned into a marriage bureau of sorts. The gender imbalance made it very difficult for Chinese men to find wives in the U.S., and immigration law allowed only wealthy merchants to bring wives here from China. The leaders at Cameron House had criteria for potential suitors and tried to ensure that marriage proposals weren't just ruses to get the women back into prostitution. Cameron did not run the mission home alone. At the age of 15, Tian Fo Wu began working as Cameron's aide. This included caring for the infants who lived at the home, serving as a translator in court, and going with Cameron on brothel rescues in Chinatown. The presence of Tian and other Chinese interpreters was essential on these raids, as it reassured the captive and terrified girls that the missionaries were there to help them and not to kill them. At the mission home, Tian received a better education than Chinese girls typically received in San Francisco, but it didn't sufficiently prepare her for the often hostile cross-examinations she endured during court proceedings. Thanks to a generous sponsor, she was able to attend an elite boarding school in Philadelphia. After four years at the Stevens School, she attended Toronto Bible College for two years, then returned to San Francisco, where she and Cameron spent the rest of their days serving Chinese youth. Cameron House also provided a haven for women like American-born Tai Lung. 
Lung's parents arranged, had arranged a marriage for her older sister to a much older man. The older sister ran away, and 14-year-old Tai was forced to take her place. So she ran away to Cameron House. Decades later, her grandson Ted told her story. At the mission home under the tutelage of Donaldina Cameron, Ty learned English and, began, and became a Christian woman. She started interpreting for Miss Cameron and assisting on many police raids of Chinatown brothels to rescue young women from prostitution. It was because of her dedicated compassion and English language skills that Ty was recommended for a federal civil service position at the new immigration station at Angel Island in 1911. She was the very first Chinese-American woman to become a U.S. civil servant when she accepted the position of interpreter and assistant matron. It was at Angel Island that she met Charles Schulz, an immigration service inspector. Around 1912, they fell in love and wanted to marry. Due to California's anti-miscegenation laws, they had to travel to the state of Washington to get married. Bowing to deep-seated prejudice against interracial marriage, they both resigned from the Immigration Service a year later. After sharing the history of the Schulz family's immigration, Ted closes, In 1912, at the Immigration Detention Center, against the backdrop of a multitude of immigration hopes and dreams, disappointments and tragedies, Charles and Ty, two unlikely but kindred spirits, met and fell in love. Despite having to face prejudicial attitudes that hounded them for the rest of their marriage, they went on to have four successful and loving children. Charles passed away in 1934, and Ty lived on until 1972. 1912 was also a big year for Ty Lung because she voted in the presidential primary making her the first Chinese woman to vote in the United States, possibly in the world. Of the experience, she told the San Francisco Examiner, My first vote? Oh, yes, I thought long over that. I studied. I read about all your men who wished to be president. I learned about the new laws. I wanted to know what was right, not to act blindly. I think it right we should all try to learn not vote blindly, since we have been given this right to say which man we think is the greatest. I think, too, that we women are more careful than the men. We want to do our whole duty more. I do not think it is just the newness that makes us like that. It is conscience. Another alumna of Cameron House was Bessie Jiang. This American-born 15-year-old ran away to Cameron House before her merchant father could take her to China to get married. Bessie witnessed her older sister's suffering in an oppressive marriage to a much older man and was determined to get an education. Cameron convinced the trustees of a college prep school to enroll the driven and intelligent young woman. She was also outspoken, independent, and respected by her mostly white peers who elected her class president. In her later years, she recalled, quote, I was the first girl to say, hey, we're not going to be homemakers, we're going to be career girls, end quote. She wasn't interested in learning how to make suits and baby layettes. Quote, we're not having babies, 
were going out into the world and contribute, end quote. She also said, quote, God had a hand in my life, because how would a little girl be able to say, I'm not going, and get away with it, end quote. In 1927, Bessie Jiang became the first Chinese woman to graduate from Stanford University. She would eventually become one of the first Chinese women doctors in the United States, and later spoke about patients' initial reluctance to see a female physician. Quote, If they see Bessie, they hesitate, even women sometimes, to go to a woman doctor. So I put B. Jiang, and before they know it, it's kind of embarrassing to turn and run, you know. They sit down, and I try to make them feel at home with me. End quote. Half a century before Jiang graduated from Stanford, Congress had passed the Page Act. The law bears the name of the California senator who sought to, quote, end the danger of cheap Chinese labor and immoral Chinese women, end quote. As we've heard, Chinese women rarely chose this for themselves. But rather than ban prostitution, or punish the male patrons, the Page Act singled out Chinese women. Under the law, the consul's office in Hong Kong would search and question women to determine if they were of good character. If the woman passed, she got a stamp on her arm, then another from the harbor master before purchasing tickets and boarding the steamer to the United States. Ten or fifteen dollars might convince the consul of the woman's good character. Customs inspectors in U.S. ports also accepted and expected bribes. By the time she arrived, the woman would have been interrogated three times and answered the following questions. Do you go to the United States for the purpose of prostitution? Are you married or single? What are you going to the United States for? Have you lived in a house of prostitution in Hong Kong, Macau, or China? Have you engaged in prostitution in either of the above places? Are you a virtuous woman? Do you intend to live a virtuous life in the United States? In the years between the Page Act and the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, immigration of Chinese women declined by 68% over the previous seven years. The restrictions made it more difficult to establish permanent Chinese communities and made it easier to exploit Chinese laborers. Without wives and other dependents, Chinese men could be piled into substandard housing, and there was less need for services like education. Judge Lorenzo Sawyer admitted as much, saying, quote, When the Chinaman comes here and don't bring his wife here, sooner or later he dies like a worn-out steam engine. He is simply a machine and don't leave two or three half-dozen children to fill his place, end quote. But by the time La Shilo arrived in 1922, immigration of Chinese women was on the rise. There was still a huge gender imbalance, but Chinatown was becoming a community of families. Wives brought here by their husbands, children, sometimes a mother-in-law, or a couple of boarders. La Shilo's family in China had been reduced from comfort to poverty by bandits roving the countryside. Even after selling their land, giving up their servants, and withdrawing all four daughters from school, the family struggled. She recalls, quote, We had no food to go with rice. 
not even soy sauce or black bean paste. Some of our neighbors even had to go begging or sell their daughters. Times were so bad, end quote. So her family arranged her marriage to a gold mountain man. He was 34 and she was 19. They married in their village, then set sail for America. Upon arrival, Law was separated from her husband and detained at Angel Island. As I mentioned in the first episode, Chinese immigrants faced a process very different from what European arrivals experienced at Ellis Island. She would have disrobed before Angel Island doctors, then provided a stool sample for testing for parasitic disease. Then she was locked up in the barracks with dozens of other women. Uncharacteristically, Law's husband was present during her interrogation, and her processing was complete within a day. She recalls, quote, It could have been because this church lady helped us, end quote, referring to Donaldina Cameron. Law describes her, their Chinatown home, an apartment in one of the many tenements built for bachelors, not for families, after the 1906 earthquake. We rented a room on Stockton Street for $11 a month. We did everything in that one room, sleep, eat, and sit. We had a small three burner for cooking. There was no ice box, and my husband had to shop for every meal. We did not use canned goods and things like that. We ate only Chinese food. There was no hot water, and we would hand wash all our clothes. We used to dry them on the roof or in the hallways. That's what happens when you are poor. It was the same for all my neighbors. We were all poor together. Law and her neighbors adopted a few American customs, like page boy haircuts or Marcel waves, and Western shoes with low heels. But they maintained many aspects of Chinese culture. They spoke Chinese only, ate Chinese food, and wore Chinese clothes, colorful, high-collared shirts with flared sleeves and calf-length skirts. They also remained mostly at home. In Law's words, quote, Nice Chinese ladies always stay home and take care of the house, chores, children, and husband, end quote. If her husband didn't have time to shop, groceries were delivered. Home-based jobs like sewing enabled them to contribute financially without leaving the children. Quote, Who had time to go out? It was the same for all my neighbors. We were all good, obedient, and diligent wives. All sewed, all had six or seven children, end quote. They also continued celebrations such as Chinese New Year, Qingming, and Winter Solstice. Unlike La Shilo and her working-class neighbors, middle-class Chinese women did venture out into the community, usually to attend English classes, church services, or other church-sponsored events. They were educated. Their husbands and fathers were merchants, doctors, or Protestant ministers. It didn't necessarily make their initial arrival any easier, though. Even though merchants, teachers, and missionaries were exempt from exclusion. Mai Zhu Yi, a teacher, immigrated in, in April 1903 to join her husband, a restaurateur and partner in two other businesses. She was detained 40 days while lawyers advocated for her in federal courts. Angel Island hadn't been built yet, so she was held with other Chinese immigrants 
at the warehouse of the Pacific Mail Steamship Company. She became so ill in the unsanitary two-story wooden shed that she was released on bond to Canada to await a teacher's visa there. Before leaving, she spoke at a Presbyterian church. After a few days, we were herded into a cart and escorted by armed guards to the wooden house. From then on, we could no longer set our eyes on our friends and relatives. Frustrated, we could only sigh and groan. Even the cargo was picked up from the docks and delivered to its destination after customs duties were paid. Only we Chinese were denied that right. How can it be that they look upon us as animals, as less than cargo? Do they think we Chinese are not made of flesh and blood, that we don't have souls? Human beings are supposed to be the superior among all the creatures. Should we allow ourselves to be treated like cargo and dumb animals? If someone as ignorant as I refuse to be regarded as such, one can imagine how you, my brothers and sisters, sitting in this audience would feel. After telling more about her ordeal, she shifted to the future and how they could strengthen their homeland. She ended her hour-long speech with, My dear sisters, we must take heart we are human beings, not to be compared with animals or goods. We must work together so that we can stand in equality, in liberty. This, then, is my fondest hope. Mai Zhu Yi was in a category of women who saw themselves as agents of change in their homeland and their new home. Many of them, like their black and white counterparts, organized self-improvement and community service clubs. Their churches, from Congregational, Presbyterian, Methodist, and other denominations, also formed societies that gave the women the opportunity to not only socialize, but develop leadership skills and advocate for issues that were important to their community. Issues like children's health, women's rights, Chinese nationalism, and education. In fact, club women were motivated by the belief that, quote, educated women make better mothers, better mothers make better citizens, better citizens make a stronger China, end quote. They raised money for Chinese famine victims and closely followed the events leading up to the overthrow of imperial rule in China in 1911. The Jaliyib Association was the first Chinese-American women's club. Its goals were, quote, social intercourse, benevolent work, educational advantages, and mutual assistance and benefit, end quote. The club was founded in 1913 by Clara Lee, who, with her friend Emma Lung, was the first Chinese woman to register to vote in the United States. It was reported in the Oakland Tribune. American-born celestials qualify. For the first time in the history of California, and it is safe to say in the history of the world, Chinese women went through the formalities of qualifying to vote late yesterday at the office of the county clerk. Two native-born women of the celestial race were registered by Deputy County Clerk William B. Smith. They were Clara Elizabeth Lee, wife of Dr. Charles G. Lee, an Oakland dentist, and Emma Tom Lung, 
who, before her recent marriage to Tom Lung, was a teacher in the True Sunshine Mission, a local institution devoted to the education of Chinese children. Mrs. Lee gave her age as 25, her birthplace as Oregon, and her politics as Republican. Mrs. Lung stated that she was 23, born in California, and a Republican also. Mrs. Lee wore the costume of the Occidental, while Mrs. Lung appeared in a light blue Chinese creation, with hair and other ornaments of ladies of her race. Both of the women were enthusiastic suffragists and exemplify in their education and ideals the progress of their sex in the social and political strife of the 20th century. It is true that Mrs. Lung still clings to the costume of her own people, but this is done out of consideration for her aged mother, who prefers that it should be so. In all other respects, Mrs. Lung, like her friend Mrs. Lee, is thoroughly American. Like I said at the beginning, Chinese-American women weren't and aren't a monolith. And it's really been a privilege to read about such varied immigration experiences. It was also a great reminder to me that each chapter of the American story has many, many characters, and I hope you enjoyed hearing about some of them today. You can learn more from the show notes at AmericanEpistles.com. Check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, and all the places. The music is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. Thank you very much for listening.